Fat Leonard is caught after a two-week international manhunt. If it was in a movie, you would think, no, that can't happen. They're making that up, but it did. I'm M.G. Perez with Jade Heineman. Maureen is out today. And this is KPBS Midday Edition. The effort to ban natural gas in your home. Gas water heaters and gas furnaces, when they burn gas, also release nitrogen oxide, and that contributes to the chance that you're going to have smog in the state of California. And how to be helpful when a loved one needs you most. That's all ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. After a 16-day international manhunt, the Malaysian defense contractor known as Fat Leonard has been caught. His legal name is Leonard Glenn Francis. The mastermind behind the Navy's worst corruption scandal was arrested as he tried to board a plane in Venezuela. That was after fleeing his house arrest in San Diego earlier this month. Joining me now with the latest details is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Greg Moran. Greg, welcome back to the program. Happy to be here. Let's remind everyone, how was Francis able to escape in the first place? Well, we know some things and we don't know as much as we should, honestly. Here's what we do know is that on the morning of September 4th, which was the Sunday of Labor Day weekend, he was uh, wearing a, a GPS uh, ankle bracelet and it alerted. He cut it off. And by the time government officials had uh, able to get out to where he was living, which was in a very uh, expensive mansion in the Torrey Highlands area of San Diego, it was like eight hours later and he was gone. Ever since then, it's been kind of unknown exactly what happened. Uh, we were able to find out last week that the uh, federal government believed he had uh, driven and crossed into Mexico soon after he cut that bracelet. And then last night, with uh, word that he had been arrested, we got a few more details. He apparently went from Mexico to Cuba and then to Venezuela and was on his way to points elsewhere, the final destination being Russia when he was apprehended. So how much do we know about how authorities were able to track him all the way to Venezuela? Well, we don't know the exact details. We do know this, that they were able to track him, that he uh, left the United States uh, through Mexico and then apparently went into uh, went from Mexico to Cuba and then to Venezuela, where he was about to board a plane. The key here seems to be um, 
The United States Marshal Service had asked Interpol to issue what's called a red notice, which is sort of an international be on the lookout and apprehend warning for fugitives. It goes to all airports, uh, seaports, uh, land border ports, ports of entry, uh, with a picture of uh, the person who is the subject of the red notice. And as far as we can tell, it was when he was attempting to board or get on this uh, flight from Caracas, uh, Venezuela, to the final destination apparently was Russia, that the red notice alerted and they were able uh, to apprehend him at the airport. They did release a, a photograph of the Interpol mugshot and he did not look happy. Why Russia? That's a, a, a question many people have been following this uh, case are asking. Unknown, really, and, and I hate to kind of keep on saying that for your listeners, but you know, there's speculation. I mean, Russia, obviously uh, not a friend of the United States, so that might be a place where he thought uh, he could uh, land safely. He was in this situation where he is uh, convicted for bribing and defrauding the United States government and the United States Navy, because for many years he, he bribed officers, admirals, uh, civilian contractors. There is speculation that he, he may have some compromising information about or some national security type information about the operations of the U.S. Navy and that he was apparently willing to trade that. But um, exactly why he was uh, going there, we don't know. And I should point out that all we know for Interpol is that they said that was the final destination of this flight was Russia. Don't know if it was a direct flight, if it was stopping in other places. You know, that's one of the, the many pieces that, that we'll need to uh, figure out going forward. So he did have a plea deal that called for him to pay $35 million in forfeiture to the government. Can we assume that deal is now off? There was a brief hearing this morning. You know, he was supposed to be formally sentenced this morning uh, after all these years. He pleaded guilty in 2015, and that was probably one of the main motivators for him to flee on September 4th. So at the hearing today, you know, they really didn't discuss much about his case. But, you know, the plea agreement has in it a number of conditions that if he were to violate them, could obviate the plea deal, that the government could say the deal's off. One of those is that he has to make all his court appearances. He obviously didn't this morning. He's 3,500 miles away in some jail in Caracas. So technically, he's in violation of the plea agreement if somebody wants to pursue that. And that could make him you know, susceptible to more charges or other charges. Uh, we just don't know at this point. So will he be immediately extradited back to the U.S. or is it not that simple? Generally, it's not that simple. I mean, extradition is an international legal process between governments and and, and individuals and, and things like that. I think even in the best of circumstances, it can take a while. You know, but Venezuela is a country that we do not have very good diplomatic relationships with right now. Um, the country is under sanctions. They're, we have very fraught tensions with them over a lot of issues, immigration, uh, energy, th- things like that. Um, there is an extradition agreement between the two countries, but how that now is executed in real time, in real life, is an open question. Um, you know, there's a school of thought that says this guy really can't help. Of Venezuela at all. They may want to curry favor, a little bit of favor with the United States by just putting him on a plane and sending him back. Uh, there's another school of thought that says, well, you know, they can now dangle him uh, with the U.S. and say, you want this guy back who, who embarrassed your Navy? You know, you have to give something to us. It's kind of early days right now. Um, but I, I don't think just given the, the normal pace uh, of extraditions that he's going to be, you know, back in San Diego anytime soon. Why has this saga of Fat Leonard dragged on for years? I mean, the trial alone was four months. 
Right. There are a lot of reasons for that, right? One is it's a big case. I mean, he 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 was, I think the indictment that, that he pleaded guilty to, the complaint he pleaded guilty to said that this went on for at least 10 years. Uh, you know, there's evidence that he had been uh, bribing and corrupting uh, the Navy for more years than that. Uh, and it defrauded the government for longer than that. So it it took a while to get him to plead guilty. He was arrested in 2013. He pleaded guilty in 2015. And then he gave the government an enormous amount of information. A lot of his records, uh, the, the trial that you referenced, you know, there's a reference in there uh, during the testimony that the government had collected some 14 million documents from him and his business and everything else, emails and invoices and receipts. So, so it's a big evidence package. There were hundreds of people who were involved. You know, it, it takes a while generally in, in, in federal court for cases to resolve. And then on top of it all, you know, in 2019, the, the COVID uh, pandemic, you know, all but shut down courthouses, it stopped jury trials. You know, there were just a number of reasons for the delay, you know, maybe not good reasons, but uh, it was mostly just because of the extent of this case and just really how widespread uh, Leonard's, Leonard Francis's corruption went. And it took a while to kind of uh, separate that all down. And so the saga continues. Can't wait for the movie. <laughs> it's, it's some of this stuff is, is uh, if it was in a movie, you would think oh, that can't happen. They're making that up, but it did here. I mean, particularly the escape is something that really kind of floored people. I've been talking with Greg Moran, reporter with the San Diego Union-Tribune. Greg, thank you. You're welcome. Last month, California air regulators grabbed headlines by banning the sale of new gas-powered cars in the state by 2035. Now the California Air Resources Board is setting its sights on gas-powered appliances in homes and buildings. They say appliances like natural gas furnaces and gas water heaters are a major polluter and an important step in the state's transition away from fossil fuels. Here to tell us more is KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, welcome. Thank you, Jade. So why is the state looking to ban gas-powered appliances in homes? How big of an environmental impact do they actually have? Yeah, that's a really good question, Jade. And and the and impact, it was surprising to me when I heard this uh, this figure. But what they say is all of the gas-powered appliances in the state of California emit more pollution than the gas-fired power plants in the state. So those facilities that keep the lights on for everybody, uh, the indoor appliances actually cumulatively deliver more pollution than gas-fired power plants. That was news to me when I first heard it, but it it sort of makes sense. Hmm. Now, the emissions from gas-powered appliances like furnaces or water heaters is different from the carbon emissions from gas-powered cars. Isn't that right? It, it is, in a sense, yes, but in another sense, no, not so much. What are emissions from a gas-powered furnace? It's basically the burning of natural gas, and cars burn liquid gas. So technically, if you were to look at it chemically, yes, they would be different, but I think that there are some general areas of concern. Right now, by the way, you may already know this too, cars are the biggest source of emissions for smog-forming chemicals like nitrogen oxide. Well, Gas water heaters and gas furnaces, when they burn gas, also release nitrogen oxide, and that contributes to the chance that you're going to have smog in the state of California. 
And can you explain how the ozone plays a role here? Yeah, ozone is is uh, what really is created to to create smog in the air. So when you have these emissions that mix uh, in the lower atmosphere and then are exposed to sunlight, which we have a surplus here in California, then that chemical reaction between these emissions and the sunlight creates the smog, the, you know, that gray sort of brownish uh, haze that that was much more common in California 20 years ago than it is today, in part because some of the rules the state has put in place. But it still happens on a regular basis. In fact, San Diego does have some of the dirtiest air in the country. They regularly make the top 20 list of the American Lung Association's dirty air uh, list. So it is a problem that still happens here in San Diego. And this is one step the state sees as taking toward a solution of fixing that problem. Ah, so so what would these new rules mean for homeowners? I mean, would they be required to replace their gas-powered appliances? Well, there shouldn't be any panic. You shouldn't run to the hardware store tomorrow about this. First of all, the, the ban takes effect in 2030. So we still have about uh, several years before the actual ban takes effect. And what will happen when the ban is is in place is it just means you won't be able to buy any new furnaces or water heaters that are powered by natural gas. Um, So if your system breaks down for some reason and you need to replace it, you'll have to find a much more environmentally friendly choice because uh, a gas burning furnace or a gas burning hot water heater will not be an option for you to purchase. It doesn't mean that people in 2030 will have to tear out their gas fired furnaces. You can have them in place until they wear out naturally. But when you replace them after 2030, you're going to replace it with something that's a little bit more environmentally friendly. Is there a big cost difference between gas and electric water heaters, for example? Yes, and that's something that is seen as an obstacle right now. For example, if you were to get a hot water heater that worked on a heat pump, uh, which is powered by electricity and doesn't use natural gas, it's very efficient. Uh, It's probably going to be about a third of the cost of running an all-electric hot water pump, uh, and it's going to be cheaper even than a gas-fired hot water heater. But the heat pump itself is much more expensive than than the other options on the market. A gas-fired hot water heater might run you somewhere between, oh, $500 to $1,500. The heat pump version might run you somewhere in the $2,800, $2,900 range. Uh, for the top end uh, versions. Uh, So cost is kind of an issue uh, for that. Same thing with furnaces. That said, would there be money made available to help people make this transition away from gas? It's interesting you ask that question because yes, in fact, the the Inflation Reduction Act that was just passed by the federal government includes a lot of money for rebates and subsidies to help convince people that that the finances aren't going to be that different. Uh, you know, they can they can get money to install these systems. The state of California is also making a commitment to help residents who are looking to choose these more climate-friendly options. And and so the details have not all been worked out, but there is money there, and that money will be made available to residents in California. What about new construction? Many of the homes, for example, are already uh, making the switch, but when might builders be required to officially stop building homes with gas appliances? Well, depending on where you live, it may have already happened. For example, the Encinitas City Council about a year ago passed a measure that says, look, any new homes or apartments built in our city 
are no longer allowed to have uh, natural gas appliances inside. So they've kind of electrified all of the new construction. There are about 49 or so communities in California that have done that. And the momentum seems to be on the state level that it's probably moving in that direction as well, although we're not quite at that point yet. And I, I want to bring up one other thing, too, that while this ban uh, is comprehensive for furnaces and for hot water heaters, uh, there are two other big items that are common in homes that have natural gas lines that run to them. One is the dryer. And the most seen item is the stove. Regulators have not done anything yet that deals with whether or not you can have a gas stove in your home. Um, cooks uh, say that they prefer to cook with gas. There are aesthetic issues involved with having those gas stoves in the house uh, that they aren't quite ready to tackle yet on a regulatory level in the state of California. Mm. So then what is the next step for these new guidelines to be enacted? I think the next step for the guidelines is today's vote by the California Air Resources Board. They're going to probably approve them. We can't say definitively that they will approve them, but they're going to take a vote on this measure today. It's widely expected that they will approve them. And then in 2030, the ban will be in effect. I've been speaking with KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, thank you very much. My pleasure, Jade. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with M.G. Perez. Maureen Kavanaugh is off today. Women around the world are protesting for more freedoms and rights in response to the death of Masa Amini, who died after being arrested in Tehran by Iran's notorious morality police, reportedly for breaking hijab rules. While women in the global West do not face this level of oppression, Inequities continue to exist, including disparities in pay and other barriers to success. These stubborn realities are why San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria says the city is reviving its commission on the status of women to, quote, ensure women have equal access to opportunity throughout their lives. Joining me now to talk about the new commission is Chida Warren Darby, Director of Appointments, Boards and Commissions for the city. And Chida, welcome. Thank you. So why was this commission revived now? So the Commission on the Status of Women was revived to simply help address the needs of women in the San Diego area and, you know, recommend programs and that are designed to alleviate any inequities that may confront women, um, be them social, economic, um, or, you know, if women have vocational pursuits. We wanted to make sure that women had the same opportunities to achieve their goals and to live healthy lives here in the city. And how did the city choose who would be on the commission on the status of women? Well, at the end of March, we announced that the commission would be revived. And Boards and Commissions has a website where people can go and apply. And so we had a lot of applicants that were able to submit applications that express interest in, you know, wanting to be a part of this new effort or this revived effort. Um, and so we simply went through the applications. We wanted to make sure that folks represented, you know, uh, all walks of life. We have uh, veterans on there. We have uh, 
people that have immigrated from Africa. Actually, one of our commissioners is an immigrant from from South Africa, um, single parents, older women, um, business owners, people that are in the healthcare profession. So we just wanted to make sure that folks represented women here within the city. Sounds like a very diverse group. Um, San Diego has, has studied inequities that affect women and found that women and people of color don't get their fair share of city contracts and that female city employees earn an average of about 17% less than male employees. Are these the types of issues that the commission might explore? Yes, absolutely. Um, You just find that there are a lot of different things that are affecting women and things that contribute to how we're able to navigate in these spaces. And so the commission will come together. They all have shared their ideas and visions for what they want to contribute as commissioners. And so we haven't had our first meeting yet, but when the commission does meet, they'll be able to come up with a game plan on what things they want to tackle first. Um, Things like pay inequity, you know, the city released a pay equity study a couple years ago. And so we can look into things like that. Um, We have issues relating to health care that have surfaced and, um, you know, just a lot of different things, child care. So there's a lot of things across the board that they want to focus on, but we're going to narrow that list down and see what we can tackle first. You know, yesterday marked Black Women's Equal Pay Day. Um, those inequities and inequalities you mentioned are greater when we look at Black women in San Diego. Can you talk a bit about that and how the commission will prioritize Black women? I think it was important to make sure that we had women on the commission that could actually speak to the Black experience. Um, being a Black woman myself, one of the, the quotes that I often think about is a quote um, once said by Malcolm X where he said, Black women are the most disrespected, the most unprotected, and the most neglected person in America. And we're able to just see a lot of things surface in the media, censorship kind of lessens and people have more access to you know, sharing different narratives, we're able to kind of see how this could be true. And I think having voices from within the Black community to speak to the Black woman experience is significant. So I'm really looking forward to seeing the types of things that they bring to the table, um, just in their authentic selves. And I think that conversation is definitely welcomed. And I think that the Black women that are represented on the commission will have the support and the backing of the other commissioners. And, um, with the understanding that, you know, if, if a woman in the movement falls, it affects all of us. We may come from different backgrounds and be of different ethnicities, but we're all affected. And so and to, this is just definitely an effort to bring us together. And to your point, I mean, how could closing those gaps for Black women improve conditions not only for women, but San Diego? I think closing the gaps would simply shift our focus we're so much more than than our ethnicity and our gender. And if we can stop, you know, fighting over things like having equality and, and, and equity um, or having access to equality and equity, we can focus on other issues that are affecting us. I mean, what are the city's hopes for the commission? Well, the hope for the commission is that, you know, Mayor Gloria always says, leave things better than you find them. And so overall, that's our hope. We want to leave the city better than we found it. We want to leave women in better conditions than they were when we came into the administration. And so we're hoping that we can, um, you know, kind of dive into the issues that are affecting women locally 
and be able to bring some policy change uh, to the administration and make sure that we're leaving a mark in this city that lets women know that we're here to support them and we're here to push the things that are um, important to them and things that will give them a better outcome in their lives. You know, if community members want to get involved, is there an opportunity to still do so? There is. And I always tell people, you know, even if you're not able to get a seat on a board or commission, these meetings are public. You can attend the meetings uh, virtually. You know, we're still having our meetings virtually. Um, so there's an opportunity to log in, participate in public comment, um, be able to submit things that, you know, folks want to hear discussed. And that's definitely an important way to participate. So it definitely goes past having an actual seat. You know, the commissioners are extensions of the residents in the city. And so we would love for people to tune into the meetings and participate in public comment and, you know, apply. You can still apply to sit on a border commission. And when there is a vacancy available, you know, we do go through those applications and see that we can make those appointments to a commissioner board. I've been speaking with Chida Warren Darby, Director of Appointments Boards and Commissions with the Office of Mayor Todd Gloria. Chida, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. A new building will open on the campus of UC San Diego Friday, housing all kinds of engineers, designing products that have never been seen before. Franklin Antonio Hall is named after the late Qualcomm co-founder and will be a place to educate engineers for generations to come. As I found out when I visited, there is already futuristic work being done there. I might represent a remote student um, attending school virtually. That's Alex Chow, a graduate student at UC San Diego, working on his master's degree in computer science. He's actually 100 miles away at home in Riverside, remotely operating a new robot that's in development on the campus in La Jolla. So with this robot, you could you know, move the robot around like so, turn around the environment, grab stuff with the arm and the gripper, and basically interact with your classmates to get a more immersive experience of school. Chow is one member of a team of UCSD graduate students experimenting with this bionic simulated person that could someday soon help children with special needs. Pratusha Gosh is also on the team doing research for her PhD dissertation. If they're unable to physically attend school, then they may be able to use this robot to actually actively participate in school as a robot. This group project is happening on the second floor of the brand new Franklin Antonio Hall, named after the late Qualcomm co-founder, who was a UCSD graduate. Antonio donated $30 million of the $180 million it cost to construct the four-story state-of-the-art building, designed by engineers to house the next generations of engineers. We're bursting at the seams. Albert Pisano was a good friend of Franklin Antonio. He is also the dean of the UC San Diego Jacobs School of Engineering, which has reached a record enrollment of almost 10,000 students. This new building makes room for growth and brings students, professors, researchers, and industry leaders together under one solar-powered roof. So when you sit in this building, you are simultaneously motivated to look out and to work within 
to collaborate and to think big thoughts independently. The building is divided into more than a dozen collaboratories, labs with collaboration going on every day on every floor. Right now we're working on a home robot that can take your groceries and put them away. Henrik Christensen is director of robotics. He teaches and mentors mechanical and electrical engineering students, and also those who are working on degrees in computer science, who design software to make the magic happen. Now I get to have them all in the same space, and this makes a big difference for them to talk to each other, to really understand how can they complement each other on building products we've never seen before. It isn't your grandfather's engineer anymore, I can assure you that. In the past 10 years, Pisano and his team have led the Jacobs School into the top 10 engineering universities in the country. He says the new home that was built on what used to be a parking lot will keep the school in the top 10, housing research in artificial intelligence, development of powerful, longer-lasting batteries for electric cars, and this. Making thin film sensors, even less intrusive than a Band-Aid, that not only can understand what's going on with your metabolism, but be powered by the very sweat that your skin exudes. No batteries. Try to move the robot towards the target. The learning curve and vibe running through Antonio Hall is just getting started as unpacking and setup continues. There is no social distancing here. Engineers are working side by side and face to face. As the saying goes, if you build it, they will come. And they have. Pisano has the welcome mat out. The world is filled with issues that need to be addressed now. A workable solution now is better than a perfect solution later. So the future is now. And it's happening in real time. M.G. Perez, KPBS News. There's been a lot of intense polarizing focus on the plight of migrants in recent years. Conversations about immigration in particular have grown increasingly politicized. But often overlooked is the actual journey that many migrants undergo through hundreds, if not thousands of miles and across oceans and continents, migrants face countless dangers on the path to a better life. Author Javier Zamora knows this more than most. At the age of nine, Zamora fled the violence and chaos of the Salvadoran Civil War and embarked on a 3,000-mile journey to safety with his mother. This journey and the perils Zamora faced along the way is the subject of a new memoir titled Salito. And joining me now with more is the book's author, Javier Zamora. Javier, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you for having me. So can you talk first about the title of your book? What does it mean and why did you choose it? The title means alone or little alone. And for me, there's threefold. So my mom leaves me when I'm five years old and my dad left when I was one years old. So from the ages of five until nine, I grew up with my grandparents and I felt uh, this sense of being alone. Part two is the actual nine week journey that I embark on in 1999 as a nine year old with no adult that I knew. And I'm with this group of six other strangers uh, being led by a coyote. And we embark on this 3000 mile nine week journey. And in it, I feel alone. 
And there's also, once I make it here, I want the readers to also question that title because it's these strangers who become family and they're the ones who help me survive. And from the ages of nine until 29, until I begin to write this book, I also, for the most part, carry the trauma that those nine weeks caused by myself alone again. I mean, what inspired you to want to turn your experiences into a memoir? A lot of the, the media coverage back in 2017 and 2018 around the unaccompanied children crisis at the border. I had got the sense that a lot of the media outlets weren't really understanding us, those children, and us who have been those children immigrating here by ourselves um, in the sense that I just felt flattened and I wanted a truer, realer perspective to be out there. And I just needed to also write this for myself because I've been running away from those nine weeks from my nine-year-old self for, at that time, 20 years. And so my therapist really advised me to look that kid, meaning me, in the eyes in order for me to heal from the trauma that those nine weeks have caused and have stayed with me. Can you talk a little bit about the actual experience of your journey from El Salvador to the U.S.? I mean, what was that like for a small child? And how do you end up uh, forming a bond with these strangers that you traveled with? Uh, you know, it was, it was a lot. I was a sociable kid uh, before my mom left, and then I was very shy, and I refused to learn how to tie my shoes. So throughout these nine weeks, this is a kid who also didn't know how to swim. And the very first hurdle was the group of us, uh, other Salvadorans that were with me, we had to board on this boat to trespass from Guatemala to Mexico. And it's a 20-hour boat ride. By boat, I mean a skiff, a motorized skiff that had no roof. And I'm there with 30 other adults, and there's three boats, so about 100 adults in the ocean. And that's very, very scary. And it is also the trip that I get close to one of the men that was with us, who I called Chino. He must have been a 19-year-old young man. And also the mom, Patricia, who's 20, I want to say 28, and her 12-year-old daughter, Carla. And as the weeks progress, this is only week three. By week eight, we're at the U.S.-Mexico border after being dragged out of buses, having guns pointing at us and losing most of our money because it got stolen by the Mexican police. We are much closer and they become this surrogate family and who really chose to be with me and to love me and to take care of me. You know, in fleeing the violence of a civil war, you were really forced to leave behind a lot of family. Were you ever able to reconnect with them or follow up on how they were once you were older? You know, for most of my time in the United States, I have been undocumented, meaning that I didn't have the privilege to go back to my country. Of course, we did the weekly, bi-weekly, or at worst, monthly call back home to stay in touch with my grandparents who raised me and my cousin who stayed behind. And when I left in 99, my two aunts stayed behind, but then they've also since done the same trip. And now they live here in the United States. And it's just difficult to see now that I have a green card and I can go back. It's difficult to see my aunts and my mom being here and the money that they send back almost weekly 
hasn't really made that big a difference in my grandparents' lives because at the end of the day, they didn't want money. They want love. And their daughters can't visit them. My grandma hasn't seen the youngest daughter since 2015. And since then, my grandma has fallen in a deep depression to the point that she literally hasn't, and this is not a metaphor, she has not left the house because she's afraid. And so it's been difficult, it's tough, and it's not unusual for the families that immigrants leave behind. You know, I want to ask you something about something that's been all over the headlines. I mean, recently, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis flew a group of migrants to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Those migrants have now filed a lawsuit against the governor for being misled about promises of safety and asylum. I'm curious as to what your reaction to all of that is. I hope they win their case, and I hope that they get treated as refugees, which they are. I guess I wrote this book in order, and after writing this book, I learned to call my journey and myself a survivor. And I think if we shift the narrative into not calling these immigrants simply immigrants or people who are breaking the law, but if we see them as people fleeing and as survivors of that 3,000 for Venezuelans and Colombians, like 6,000 mile trip, they're survivors. And hopefully, if we treat them as such, we can treat them more humanely and stop using them as political pawns. You know, you mentioned this earlier, but so much of the immigration conversation in America is caught up in political policy, uh, depending on where you're coming from. So what do you think is missing from this conversation? I hope that after reading my book, you really get a fuller picture of what us immigrants have to survive in order to come here and work. And now you have names. You know me, you know Chino, you know Patricia, you know Carla. These are full human beings that are not only their suffering, but I hope that I have also shown you their joy and wanting and love of life. We are more than the headlines. We are more than the tragic pictures and the tragic videos and the political using, the political pawning that we have become, you know. We are more than that. And just, I would hope readers and listeners, they remember that. I've been speaking with Javier Zamora, author of the new book, Salito, a memoir. Javier, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Javier will be hosting a signing of his new book in partnership with Warwick's this Saturday at 4 p.m. at the Coronado Public Library. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with M.G. Perez. Maureen is out today. When someone we love is sick, one of the first questions many of us have is, how can I help? But learning how to be helpful in difficult situations doesn't always come naturally, especially for children. A new book teaches the notion of how being helpful feels good. It's called When Mom Feels Great, Then We Do Too. And I'm joined now by the book's author, Phyllis Schwartz. Phyllis, welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. 
Glad to have you. So this is a difficult topic to tackle in a children's book, a parent's illness. And I'm wondering, what inspired you to write about it? It bubbled up from my own experience as a three-time cancer survivor. Uh, I did not have small children through my various cancer experiences. My kids were a little older, teenagers and older adults. But I felt about a year ago, something just hit me that I wanted to express a simple constructive message aimed at little kids, not to trivialize illness or injury for a family member or a loved one, but I think to to show children and then their families around them that they have the power to contribute towards a more positive outcome when someone has a health threat. And it, it I don't mention the word cancer in the book, although I think most people will pick up on that. That is the illness of the mother. It could be someone that's an injured family member. Um, and I, I felt that small kids might feel overwhelmed, of course would feel overwhelmed, by someone in the house that was sick or under the weather and be frustrated that wouldn't really understand how they could contribute. It just feels, when, when you have someone in the household that's sick, it feels so overwhelming. And I know when I didn't feel well, I was overwhelmed, but I, I would try to help my family and my friends and my coworkers, my newsroom coworkers at the time when I was in news, and give them ideas on how they can help me. I'm pretty verbal and I'm in touch with what I need and want, but little kids um, may not be able to pick up on those on those cues. Um, it might be obvious if a mom or a grandma says, hey, can you pick up your clothes today because I'm feeling crummy? But how do you get kids to feel that they can be um, contributors, that they can be helpful? So not only do they feel really good about it, but then the person that they're helping in my case, this was the case for me um, with my friends and family and children, even though that they were somewhat older, it was, he, in my, I feel that it was healing. I mean, and let me ask you about that. The idea of, of helpfulness can be very meaningful, not just for the person whose friends and family rally around them, but also for the person helping. Can you talk about how helpfulness can be healing? I think that for me and for others that maybe don't feel well and are in need of healing and help, there's something about knowing that someone wants to help that's almost as wonderful of a feeling as the helping itself. It's just the gesture. It's feeling um, appreciated. When you're not feeling well and you're walking around in your crummy pajamas and I'm speaking for myself, and you feel like, you know, am I worthy? Do I, you know, do I, you get into these things, like, do I deserve, you know, this attention? Do I want the attention? And I found that even the smallest uh, gesture and the little bit of help, it was the help, but it was the thought, too, that I found really gave me a boost. And when I first got sick, I was on my own in Chicago and I was working in a newsroom. I had just gone there to work in a new newsroom. 
And my colleagues who barely knew me were so fantastic. I mean, they would take me to the hospital. They would bring me books. They would go get me crackers if I was going to have to go, excuse me, throw up um, from my radiation. So I think that there's a few different things here. It's people can come up with the simplest thing to help make you feel good. It doesn't, grand gestures are great, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't have to be a grand gesture. And going back to little children, you know, they might not have an allowance. It's, I'm not talking about going out and, you know, buying mom an ice cream, but they're just doing things to make people feel loved and comfortable. And I think in the case of children, to indicate, I'm going to say mom because I'm a mom and I was a mom. It could be anybody. But just the fact that children can come up with things that's in their power to do. Go out and weed the garden, which I talk about in my book, or help grandma make the bed. I think it's good to set people up with suggestions that are achievable. Maybe little kids aren't going to come up with that on their own, but dad might suggest it. Mm. You know, you have a section from the book to read. Will you share it with us? Thank you very much for asking, by the way. It turned out that our mom was sick, so doctors came up with a fix. They took out some bumps and sent her home quick. Dad said mom's recovery will be swifter if you make her laugh and don't pinch your sister. Granny said you can help make mom's bed and not let the worries fill your heads. We made her funny videos and colored a card and even helped weed daisies in the yard. I I wrote it, but it's funny. I love it. I love this line. When the granny says, and not let worries fill your heads. That's such an important part of this. And one that that goes back to, to helping children sort of work through their emotions of feeling confused and helpless, right? I'm sure everybody has had, many people have had this experience where your parents are kind of whispering in the other room and you're laying down by the door. I used to do this and you're listening to the crack. What's going on? It sounds like, you know, something important is being discussed. And so kids get like the tail end of things or the whisper. And by, I think this book, I'm hoping that it helps families and even people that don't have families, maybe with their friends, start a discussion about if you don't feel well, what do you need? What would you like me to do? What are some simple things I could do? Even the simplest thing is so appreciated. I've been speaking with San Diego author Phyllis Schwartz. She'll be speaking and signing copies of her book, When Mom Feels Great, Then We Do Too, at Warwick's Books on Sunday, September 25th at noon. And Phyllis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, 
we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.